Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. So I want to start with, uh, I want to tell you guys, some of you guys know that my mom breeds dogs. She's bred dogs my whole life, and I've always wanted my own dog when I, you know, when I grew up and I had a, uh, a home of my own, but my wife objects. She says I can't get a dog until our last child is out of diapers, but one day I had had enough. I said, woman... I am an adult, I earn my own money, I pay for this house, I can afford a dog, I am getting a dog. Right, that's right. (laughs) So one day I came home with a dog, a beautiful little puppy girl, Australian Shepherd. She was the most amazing dog from the start, but Kara flew into a rage. She finally threw up her hands and said, it's me or the dog. And I love my my wife, so I went along. And I wanted wanted the dog to go to a good home, so I wrote a classified ad about the situation. And here's what I wrote. My wife does not like my mini Australian shepherd, so I have to rehome her. She's not purebred, but comes from good stock. She likes to play games, but is not totally trained. She has long hair, so she's a little high-maintenance. She stays up all night yapping, but does almost nothing while I'm at work. She eats only the best and most expensive food and will never greet you at the door after a long day or give you unconditional love when you are down, free to a good home. P.S. She can cook and clean. About half of that story is actually true. I'll let you guys decide which half. (laughs) can figure that one out for yourself. Well, it's good to be back up here again. And uh, we're going to be launching into... You know, I thought this was just amazing, the Holy Spirit, what what he does. He He had me really pouring over Luke in my private time over the summer while we were still in the book of Romans. And then obviously I knew that I was going to be picking things back up in in December. And, um, you know, it just works because the Christmas story is found in Luke. So I, you know, I just really felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to to start in in Luke. And, And that's what we're going to be doing over the next, who knows how many months. We're going to be in Luke for a while. And you know, I hope that I'm, you know, not too offensive to people as we go through things. Jesus himself, after all, was uh, sometimes offensive to his audiences. I hope that doesn't uh, 
hope that's not the case too much here, but I, I do want to start with sharing my, my title of today's message is uh, Make Christmas Great Again. <laughs> yes. Let's begin with a moment of prayer. <laughs> Lord, I need you. I need you so that I, uh, so that the words that I speak will be offensive only to those who you want them to be offensive to. <laughs> Lord, help me to get, a, to get out of the way, Lord, and to deliver your word as you would see me fit. And help everyone here to hear what it is that you want them to hear as we launch into the Christmas season, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to go over, uh, again, sort of in a very exegetical way. We're going to try to do this line by line for a season. And we're just going to dive right into Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, have di I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." So this is an introduction paragraph, okay? This is, this is actually one of the reasons why many people think that Luke was an intellectual, that he was maybe even a physician, was because he included this introductory paragraph in his writing style. Now, this is something that's sort of in the classic Greek literature style, and it's actually, if you open up a book today, many books today have this introduction, this kind of an introduction, where it's explaining who the author is, why they're writing the book, and who the audience is. So this is a very classical Greek style. There's many unique features in the Gospel of Luke as compared to some of the other Gospels. I want to kind of point out some of those. First of all, you'll see that Mark is a Gospel of action. You see that Mark was written specifically to Jews. You see that Mark sort of builds up, and, and Mark doesn't even really identify Jesus as the Messiah for the majority of the book. He's not even identified as that um, until kind of the later half of the book. But Luke is very different. Luke takes the stance right from the beginning by identifying who Jesus is. He is the Savior. He is the one who is talked about in the Old Testament, okay? And it's also very much a, a gospel of relationship, okay? So Jesus is very personable. He's very active in people's lives as opposed to a little bit in Mark. Now, he is, of course, active in, in people's lives in, in Mark, but this is much more personal, okay? So he has much concern in the Gospel of Luke for society, for the needy, for the poor, for those who were classified at that time as sinners by the religious people. There's also a very strong call to discipleship in the, in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the reasons why I think I gravitate towards it. And it's also chronological. Not all the Gospels are exactly chronological the way that Luke is. You know, Luke starts at the beginning and begins the process of describing things that most of the audience, most of the people who have been hearing about Jesus didn't know a lot of these things, right? And obviously Luke wasn't around for these things, so he explains that he's, he's interviewing eyewitnesses. So who did he interview? Well, he more than likely interviewed Mary 
And he could have interviewed even Zechariah from the very beginning. He is looking and gathering information that many other people don't have. And he starts off, uh, the reason that he starts off the way that he starts off here in verse 5, we're going to get to that, is because he's actually explaining all of the different prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus and his birth and all the different things that happened right from the very beginning. Who was Luke? I've often, not often, but I have in the past made the mistake of trying to explain to people what the Gospels are. And I say, well, they're stories from, you know, Jesus' apostles, you know, his followers. Four of them wrote it down. But actually, Luke wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve, like in the other Gospels. He was likely a second-generation Christian who actually did not walk with Jesus at all while he was alive. Now, there are some traditions that believe that he was one of the 72. I I actually don't think that he was one of the 72, as as we're going to talk about that here in a a minute, because he's talking about in this introductory that he's investigating things, and he's investigating claims that were made to him, and he's writing them down for for a friend, uh, Theophilus, okay? Um, And Theophilus, uh, we don't really know much about him either. We just know that he might have been kind of a skeptic, right? Because you have that, that last line right there where he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, which kind of indicates that maybe Theophilus, he's been taught these things, but he's kind of a skeptic. He's not entirely sure. And Luke says, well, look, I've been where you were at, Theophilus, and these are all of the things that I gathered up to help me be strong in my faith, to affirm my faith, right? And so I kind of look at the the book of Luke in a way, uh, and Acts is, is a little bit different because in Acts, Luke is actually a participant. So he identifies himself in Acts as as a participant, as an eyewitness, right? Because, you know, he's he's featured several times as engaging in ministry with Paul. And then Paul conversely talks about uh, uh, you know, Luke in several of his epistles, so he mentions Luke. But I kind of like to think of Luke in particular, the, the Gospel of Luke in particular, as sort of like an ancient version of A Case for a Creator. Do you guys know this book, A Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel? So this was a guy who was a skeptic, he was an atheist, he did not believe in Christianity, and his wife got dramatically saved, I think it was in the 70s, his wife got dramatically saved, and he spent whatever money he had saved up, and he was like this prolific author and writer and everything, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, and he went around the globe trying to interview anybody he possibly could to prove Christianity wrong. Now, we don't know exactly if that's what Luke did, but what ended up happening with Lee Strobel is that he looked at all the evidence that he had gathered, and he said, I I cannot dispute the truth. And he he gave his, his life to the Lord. And so then he took all of the evidence that he had gathered, and he published it into actually many books. The first one, I believe, was Case for a Creator, and then Case for Christ, Case for Faith, all these different books that kind of flowed out of that. But I kind of like to think of Luke as, as one of those authors, where he, he had compiled all this information on his own and is now writing it down to make it available to Theophilus and really anybody uh, who, who you know, might want to listen to it. Um, when was it written? A lot of people, you know, uh, we're not entirely sure. It's really impossible to know exact dates, but because of some of the events that happen in Acts and some of the things that happen actually 
after we believe Acts was recorded, um, we usually look at a time frame of about between 60 and 65 AD. The main reason for this is because the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, right? Well, we know, uh, based on historical records, that Paul was more than likely in prison between 60 and 62 AD, but he was executed in 65 AD during Nero's persecution. So when Rome burned, Nero, uh, who was the emperor at the time, wanted to find a scapegoat, and so he blamed Christians. And so he began to sort of persecute Christians and Jews because the Roman emperors actually at the time made very little distinction between Christians and Jews. And he began to try to eradicate them from the city. And during that time, Paul was actually in prison, and so Nero had him killed. But none of those events are recorded in the book of Acts, and you would think that they would be recorded if if uh, Luke wanted, you know, if they had to ha- occurred, I'm sure Luke would have written them down. So there's some of the logistics, that's some of the context of the book of Luke, just kind of giving you guys a little bit of a foundation before we move on. But then in verse 5 is where really the Christmas story begins, right? So here we are, verse 5. In the time of King Herod, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time of, uh, for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So it's, uh, I'm just going to kind of pick apart some of these things, some of the kind of interesting facts about this. Um, it, there are five different rulers in the New Testament named Herod. It can be very confusing because they're kind of scattered all over the place. And even uh, Philip is named as Herod Philip in Mark chapter 6. That would be the sixth one, although he wasn't a ruler. The one that's mentioned here was Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. The events right off the bat, you know, take place. Anyone know the year they take place? It's kind of a trick not exactly a trick question. It's like year one, right? Because <laughs> our calendar is based on the birth of Jesus. This is, takes place in year one. <laughs> Zechariah was a priest. I mean, it's like, duh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> right? Makes sense. <laughs> Zechariah was a priest who served in a group of 24 priestly families, each one serving in the temple twice per year. And that brings you to 48 priestly families, but then they had four week-long celebrations in which all the priests would serve, okay? And because there were so many priests in each family, each person was only permitted to offer the, the daily incense offering at the temple once in their entire lifetime. Think of this. This was actually, most people believe that this was Zacharias's like finest hour. This is the pinnacle of his career, of his service to the Lord. He's, he's going into the temple and he's been given this opportunity to offer up the incense, right? 
And because so many of us have read the, these passages for so many years, right? This is, this is the challenge that many pastors have over Christmas, is that we're trying to draw some information that might be unique or maybe something that you haven't heard for the first time. But I have to admit, I, I've read through this so many times, and I, and I actually, what stands out to me in these first few verses is right at the end, is, is verse 10. There was a group of worshipers, and when the time came for the burning, and when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. These are people who, at that time, were devoting themselves to daily prayer, and they're praying for Israel. They're praying for the Messiah. Can I just say, I've gotten to know and visit a number of churches over the last few years and get to know a number of congregations and pastors. And, and I can tell almost immediately, just by stepping into a building, which church has a community of people who are praying daily for that church. And when I say church, I'm talking about the, the people. I'm not, the, I'm not talking praying for the building. We're praying for the people. I can tell almost immediately who has a congregation of people who are prayerfully worshiping the Lord for that community, for that congregation. And when I look at our church, I have to say that there are people here who are praying for us daily. I know that. I, I am. I know the elders do pray for this community daily, but what would it look like if all of us prayed for all of us daily? Because I don't think all of us are. I know a lot of us are, especially the leaders, but not everyone is. So I just kind of want to leave that. What would our church and our community look like if everyone in this room you don't need to gather. You can pray on your ride to work. You can pray in your own private time reading the scriptures. What would it look like if we all prayed for one another daily? Well, I think that we would see something similar to what Zechariah began to see. The Lord responds to our prayers. So what did Zechariah see? Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So Zechariah began with a sort of standard uh, reaction to seeing an angel. This is standard all throughout the Bible. Fear, right? I think all of us, if we saw, I mean, we don't know how big the angel was. He could have been like 20 feet tall. But if you see an angel, the standard reaction, in case you don't know, is fear. And then the angel gave the standard greeting of, fear not. This is all throughout the Old Testament, (laughs) all throughout the New Testament. Anytime somebody sees an angel, they're gripped with fear. They're paralyzed with fear. They can't move. They can't speak. They can't do anything. And the angel always says, fear not. It's kind of a standard thing. The tense here for the phrase has been heard. It's one word that indicates a lifelong prayer. Even before he was married, even before he knew his wife was barren, he had been praying for a son. Now, it's also very interesting because there's an indication that he had stopped praying, right? 
because his wife had been barren. So there, and they were very old, right? So, I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where if you and your wife are very old and you don't have any kids, maybe you had been praying for 20 or 30 years, but you know, when do you stop praying, you know, and your wife is 60, are you still praying that maybe you'll get a kid? I mean, I, I, I probably didn't, would not have the faith for that. I, I don't know about you guys, right? And so there's this indication that he had been praying for a long time for a child and then stopped. But the, the angel comes and says, your prayer, the Lord has heard your prayer, which is, I, I just want to, I want to draw that out for a second because some of us have been praying for something for a very long time. And, and maybe some of us have stopped praying for that thing. But I want to tell you, the prayers that you prayed for that thing 10 years ago, they still count. They're still there. The Lord has heard that prayer. And the Lord may honor that prayer, even if you've forgotten. Even if you've maybe lost faith for that. Bring it back to prayer. But I want, you to, I want to remind you that the Lord has heard that prayer. And he's, he's not going to just let it go, even if you do. And then, of course, they named the son John. Great name. Great name. How many of you guys know what John means? I, I do. <laughs> it means God is gracious. It means God is gracious. So oftentimes you see these names as a reaction to what's going on. God heard his prayer. And so the name is John as a reaction to God being gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth. <clears throat> By the way, uh, knowing names and, and knowing what your name means and, and even when you're you know, sort of getting to know somebody, understanding what their name is, and, and there's something almost prophetic in a person's name. It's kind of an interesting little thread to pull on when you first get to know somebody. Moving on to 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I talked about this uh, last month when I shared. You can go back and listen, listen to that. But the, the point that I brought out of these verses last month was that the Lord knows. This is as close as I get to Calvinism. The Lord knows the time and the place and chooses the time and the place and the parents by which you will be born to. And, and this is not, I will tell you, this is an example of God's foreknowledge, not predestination. This is an example of the angel prophesying not choosing or sharing what will happen that there's no control over. This is an example of the prophetic. The angel's statement regarding alcohol was both a command and a prophecy because his parents 
could choose whether or not he followed. By the way, this is the, the, Nazare, the vow of the Nazarene that's found in number six. The parents can choose to offer up their child, but when the child becomes 13 and, and is sort of uh, an adult, so to speak, in the eyes of uh, the Jewish culture, the Israelites, then they also have to choose that vow. And so it was both a command to the parents and a prophecy that John would choose to maintain that vow at the time of, of his coming. In addition, the majority of verse 17 is almost a direct quote from the closing statements of the Old Testament from the book of Malachi, thus connecting both the Old Testament and the New Testament right there chronologically. <clears throat> and, and I just want to say, like, that is what I believe is so brilliant about Luke, and it's one of the reasons why I love, you know, if I meet a new uh, Christian or somebody who's interested in Christianity, I love explaining what the Old Testament and the New Testament is and trying to find sort of a chronological flow because so many of us in our Western way of thinking, we think chronologically. And it's much easier. Like I don't usually, and I've heard of this, there's, there's pros and cons for both. I've heard of people, you know, oh, you're a new Christian, oh, you want to learn about Jesus, read Read John, the Gospel of John, and that is just so heavy in theology. It's, it's, for me, it's difficult to understand. When I meet somebody and I'm you know, evangelizing or I say, look, you just got to read the Word, I usually refer people to the book of Luke because everybody's heard the Christmas story too. There's so much familiarity, and it's right there at the beginning. It starts somebody, oh, this is where they talk about the shepherds and the wise men. That's why you see all that. It just helps people with that flow. Then we have verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. You like how he said she's well along. I'm an old man, but she's well along. He's, (laughs) she's not even there, but he's honoring her. I like that. (laughs) The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, this is where Zechariah messed up. Like, you know he messed up because he's silent. He, like, you know, strikes him silent. But you're like, well, why? That doesn't, I don't, I don't understand. It doesn't sound like he's being like aggressive or anything but the reality is is that if you look at the way that it's written in Greek which you, you don't often see if you if you don't know Greek Zechariah is not simply asking a question the language that he's using here is actually a request for a sign so he's he's actually responding in disbelief and asking for confirmation which is the opposite of faith and the angel, like, of all people, this is Zechariah, he's a priest. This is the pinnacle of his entire career, and here he is with no faith. And then I love this, too, because I was reading this in the commentary. There's, there's this contrast, because what, what does Zechariah say? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel standing right in front of you. I stand in the presence of the Lord. What do you think, you know, are you going to go with your intuition? You're an old man, and I'm an angel standing in front of you. I stand in the presence of the Lord. I just thought that was hilarious. There's this contrast, right? (laughs) And many of you, I, I know I've heard Tom preach about this, about the difference between Mary and Zechariah's responses, right? The difference has to do with faith. That's really what it is. 
Zechariah doesn't have faith. And of all people, he should have had faith, right? And then there's Mary, who maybe of all people could, could have, like you could kind of assume that her, what the angel told her is even more crazy than what the angel told Zechariah. She's not a priest, and what does she say? She's like, I'm the Lord's servant. You know, I'm just, I, great. I mean, she asks a question, like, how could this be? But it's not out of disbelief. It's like out of astonishment. It's like, that, like, that's amazing, Lord. Seriously? So, the lesson learned, the next time an angel appears to you, after the standard exchange of fear and fear not, right? After you peel yourself up off the floor, Let's agree to be more like Mary and just say, I'm the Lord's servant. It's a pretty good response to whatever the angel tells you. I'm the Lord's servant. (laughs) But you know, that's also true in your prayers, right? And that's also true in your heart. Does an angel really need to appear to you for you to respond to the Holy Spirit by saying, I'm the Lord's servant? Is that really faith even? I mean, to me, it's astonishing that Zechariah would be like, no, or whatever, you know, he's get confused. I mean, obviously, if an angel appeared here, we would, we would say, yeah, you know, whatever they tell us to do, you know, this isn't like a, a naked baby. This is a guy in our battle armor, probably, who's probably 30 feet tall, shining like lightning, right? All of us would say yes, but that's not exactly faith, is it? When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we ought to be a little bit more like Mary. I am your servant, Lord. <clears throat> Get quiet. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, keep in mind, uh, for those of you guys who don't know, that when a priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer incense or something like that, often they would tie a rope around them, because had they not practiced all of the purity rituals in the Old Testament just right, they would be struck dead, right? So, Zechariah's in there for a long time, and everyone's like, did... Did somebody make sure to tie the rope around him? Because I don't, I don't want to go get him. I hope somebody tied a rope around his leg. Because if he's dead in there, I'm not going to go get him, right? <laughs> and so there would have been a cause for concern, all right? But he came out, and it was custom, by the way. I didn't know this was kind of interesting. It was custom for the priest to come out after offering, offering the incest and to in, in, incense and to pray the Numbers 6 blessing over the people who were praying out, out, outside. But he couldn't. So because he was unable to say that blessing, people knew that something had happened, right? Which is kind of, just kind of an interesting thing. It's just that Numbers blessing after, you know, the daily offering, right, over everybody who is praying. That's, by the way, what we pray over our kids every single night. That's a tradition that was passed down from Kara's parents and even their parents, I think, before them. And uh, maybe it goes all the way back to 
you know, the Bible, <laughs> Scripture. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. And these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among his people. You got to wonder if his forced silence played a role in the conceiving of the child. (laughs) Then she goes into seclusion. This is probably the most peaceful house in all of Galilee at this time. She's in seclusion. He can't talk. (laughs) See, I always, if you look close enough, you can see God has a sense of humor. You just got to kind of pause for a second, just play it out in your head. She's in seclusion. He can't talk. Peace. Now, I do want to comment regarding her, what is referred to here as her uh, uh, disgrace here. And, and I'm going to kind of veer into a little area here. Children are one of the most precious gifts from the Lord, whether planned or not. And one of the, hear me, one of the biggest victories that the enemy has ever gotten in our culture is how he has convinced a generation of people to avoid having children and thus depriving them of one of the most challenging but fruitful and fulfilling senses of purpose that anybody can ever have. Now, I understand that not everybody can have children, and there's, not only there's, is there special grace for that, but I believe that the Lord is doing something in each one of those people who, who can't conceive for various reasons, but, but the real disgrace is what we're seeing now. The real disgrace is people who can have children, who are even married, who choose not to. If you take away the desire for children, then you take away one of the things that gives us the most purpose in our lives. Almost anything on earth. And so what have we seen now? We've seen a generation of folks without purpose, aimless, selfish, suicidal, broken. Choosing to not have kids is the real disgrace. I'm sorry if that triggers some people. Now, I know I've covered a lot today. And it's partly due to us only having four weeks to travel through two lengthy chapters in Scripture. But it's also partly because many of us have heard all these stories before. Many of us have read these Scriptures. Probably, I mean, maybe more than any other Scriptures, right? Because we all kind of gravitate. We hear these Scriptures every year, right? You know, uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2. They're part of every Christmas season. They're part of every kid's book that we read to our kids during Christmas. We are reading to our kids, right? Yes, we are reading. It's important. They're part of numerous movies that we hear, that we see every year. They're part of all the Christmas services every year. And if I'm being honest, I know that there's nothing new under the sun. And it's not very likely that I'm going to come up with any, any like new way to view the Christmas story or some new theological idea. In fact, it's the people who come up with new ideas that I'm, I'm like really skeptical about because 
I really think that, you know, we just need to stick to the truth and, you know, nothing is new under the sun. But I must admit, I have struggled over the last few weeks praying and asking the Lord to give me something that will help awaken Christmas for our congregation. Something that will help this season become new, vibrant, exciting, energetic. Something that will position us for a new experience for the Lord this year. Something that will make this year stand out. Are you guys ready for it? The Lord spoke to me. And he reminded me. It's not my job to make Christmas special for you. It's your job. I'm not going to be there on Christmas morning. I'm going to be making Christmas special for our kids. I'm not going to be there every single day for the next month reminding you to read scripture or pray or turn off your TV or your phone. Many of us know the song, uh, The Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. Uh, But not everybody knows the story behind it. Most of the worship leaders, I'm sure, do especially the sound text, you'll you'll hear why. (laughs) From what I read, uh, and I've heard this story before, I want to make sure I got the details right, Matt and his worship band have been instrumental in leading his region in England through a revival of sorts in the 90s. But at some point, Matt and the pastors realized that their church had just kind of drifted and kind of like, in a way, like gone astray. It had become commercialized. Worship had become commercialized. Many of them had lost the heart of worship. Sound familiar about Christmas? So they did what any good pastor or leader would do, and in between Sunday services, they got rid of the band, all the instruments, and all of the sound equipment. Just cleared house. (laughs) And you know, they worshiped the Lord with just their voices for a season. I would submit to you that many Americans haven't even the slightest clue why we celebrate Christmas. It's become commercialized. You don't see nativities. You see snowmen and Santa Claus. Many of them would feel very out of place, confused even, if they were stripped of their metaphorical band and sound equipment for the month of December. Maybe some of us would. So I guess my challenge to you is twofold. First, prayerfully consider where you're at. Where is your family at? It's okay, by the way, to have experienced drift over the last few years. It's okay to get kind of caught up with family celebrations. Like, many of those things are good things. Okay, I'm not like trying to steal the Christmas trees and like take away Christmas. Part of it's normal during certain seasons of our lives, right? And my gosh, there's an abundance of grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But we should have, here's the the but, we should have enough awareness to be able to determine if we have let something other than Christ become the center of Christmas. In our own hearts, but even in our families. It's, a, it's okay to participate in Christmas traditions. It's okay to eat a little much, okay? It's okay to give presents to your kids. We have freedom in Christ. And don't ever let anybody try to take away your freedom in Christ by trying to guilt you into something. 
It's because of the freedom that we have in Christ that we can actually enjoy the season that the Lord has given us. It's because of the freedom that we have in Christ that we can welcome and maintain Christ at the center of our traditions, at the center of our worship, and at the center of all the things that we do to bless our families and to bless each other. But it doesn't come out of obligation or guilt. It comes out of love and gratitude for the incarnation. It's a difference. So my second part of the challenge, the first part is to recognize where you're at. Just spend some time either today during worship or as you go on you know, throughout your week. Where are you at? Is Christ the center of your season, of your Christmas? Have you, have you drifted? It's okay, there's grace for that. I know that I have at times. My second part is I want you to then bring it back to Christ. Bring it back to Christ. And so I've got some suggestions to help us be less distracted. Because that's, that's, that's what it is. We get distracted. We don't intend. None of us intends to, like, I'm just going to intentionally remove Christmas or Christ from Christmas. Nobody, it's always unintentional. It's always through distractions. That's, that's how the enemy gets in, at least during this season. So how many of you guys know what I'm going to say about distractions? I mean, you guys been around for a year? Turn off social media. Get off social media. Complete abstinence for the month of December. Turn off your television. Stop watching the news. And can I just say, it has now become socially acceptable in this congregation to say that you don't watch the news, which is great, except I know that there are people doing it. And I'm not talking about watching the TV. They're listening to podcasts. They're on YouTube. And you know how I know that they're doing it, even though they say they're not doing it? Because when you talk to them, they're regurgitating talking points. I know it. You know when somebody starts playing the script that they heard on the screen the night before. Turn it off. Turn it off. It's brainwashing you. And it's one of the ways the enemy gets a foot in there. To distract you from the Christ and Christmas. Don't get distracted. And my favorite, stop saying happy holidays. I just don't. No, no, no. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Number two. <laughs> there we go. Number two. If you want something different, do something different. You want, you want Christmas to, to, to be kind of commercialized? You, you're happy with, if you don't want it to, you know, be a little bit more special this year for you or your kids, if you don't want to grow closer to Christ this year, then don't do anything different. And next year we'll have the same conversation. If you want something different, do something different. Switch it up a bit. Pray more, worship more, read more. Engage in spiritual practices. Me and my family, we've never done this before because... I don't know why, but we're doing an Advent calendar. That's one of the things that we're doing with the kids and just trying to like, you know, they get a little piece of chocolate, you know, and then they, we, we have a conversation about the Bible verse, where it is in the Christmas story, what it means, those kinds of things. It's just something small. Sometimes it's just one step. Sometimes it is something small. 
The reality is, is that when we try to like, I'm going to scrap everything and, you know, create new traditions and we're just going to, you know, Christmas morning, we're going to sit and read the Bible and, uh, and pray. No, no uh, presents or anything. We're just going to sit and read the Bible and pray. I mean, that actually would be kind of nice and refreshing, less chaotic, but that's not realistic. What, what is realistic? Most people don't follow spiritual practices because they try to do something too big. They try to do too much. And they try to change. Maybe they can keep it up for 30 days. Maybe they can keep it up for 40 days. Just do something small. Just take a small step. That's what I want you. That's, that's just take a small step, step towards the Lord. If you take one small step towards the Lord, He will be faithful to you. And He will take a step towards you. Maybe he'll take five steps towards you. But all you have to do is just be faithful and take one step towards him. And then who knows? Maybe all of us will be able to keep Christmas great. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they, as they are coming and as they begin to kind of lead us in worship, I want you to think about those two things. Where are you at? Where are you at? And what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you to do? This isn't about me. You know, and I could come up with 30 suggestions. You can Google them. You know, what can I do to keep Christ the center of Christmas? Something will come up, I'm sure. But it's not about what I want you to do or what you know, suggestions you can get from Google. It's what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. So where are you at this Christmas? Maybe you're in a good place. That's great. Praise God. Praise God. Then then make sure that your overflow blesses other people. Like, like what Al was saying at the beginning of the service. But if you've let yourself drift, that's okay. We love you. God still loves you. You don't have to sit in the center section. <laughs> Notice there's nobody up there. We're saints, remember? <laughs> but then consider what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And ask for the courage to do it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.